Good morning. The peace of Christ be with you all. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at Indelible Grace. If you're new here, we're so glad you're here. I'd love to meet you after um, the service in the back. So this is the third Sunday of Advent in which we're celebrating, we're celebrating peace. We've considered hope, joy, and now peace. And what we've been doing this Advent season is looking at Advent through the Apostle Peter. What does he tell us about each one of these virtues? So today we're going to look at peace through First Peter. We're actually going to finish First Peter today. We've skipped two sections, but don't worry, we're going to cover those uh, in the near future. So when my wife and I uh, moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, eight years ago, we had no idea that we were moving. We were moving to rural Virginia. We had no idea that this rural Virginia was actually a hotbed for mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness. Charlottesville is a sleepy university town surrounded by wineries and horses and farms that wave Confederate flags. It's a little scary for, for, for Californians. But you would not expect rural Virginia to be on the cutting edge of Buddhist meditation. And yet it is. There's actually a town in Virginia called Yogaville. Yogaville. Billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Jones had recently donated $15 million to establish the Center for Contemplative Sciences. Contemplative Sciences at the University of Virginia, where they study the health and psychology, the benefits, psychological benefits of yoga and mindfulness meditation. As a graduate assistant, I had several classes where the professor had invited in a bearded white dude from the education school to lead us in a mindfulness meditation. He would ring a bell, and it would start and finish. It was weird. (laughs) Now that I'm in the Bay Area, though, I'm actually closer to the nucleus of American mindfulness. Silicon Valley. Sociologist Jamie Kuczynskas explains in her book, The Mindful Elite, the meteoric rise of mindfulness for the last 30 years. And a lot of it has to do with these these elites that are clustered around Boston, New York, Silicon Valley, who are deep believers in this thing called mindfulness. It's reached the most elite corners of American culture. Ivy League universities, Yale Law School, Corporate America, Google and Target... You can download right now a phone app that's going to help you meditate, help you find peace. And the mindfulness that's proffered is actually this kind of non-sectarian universal practice to achieve not only psychological peace, but also world peace. John Kabat-Zinn, an MIT PhD, he says this about mindfulness. It may actually be the only promise the species and the planet have for making it through the next couple of years. That's pretty intense. Now, this meteoric rise of mindfulness is a response to something. There's this pervasive yearning for inner peace we see in our culture. People are racked with anxiety and inner distortion, and they're hungry for some mechanism that can give peace of mind. So my question is, like, what do we do with mindfulness? What do we do with this? Does Christianity have anything to offer? Is there any sort of peace that we have? Let's see how God's word speaks to this craving of peace. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, where you can look on your bulletin. We're going to start it in 5b, the last half of verse 5 of chapter 5. 
It's in the word of God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Would you pray with me over God's word? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the peace that it gives us. We pray, O Lord, that we would see nothing less than Jesus. Jesus who was crucified for us. And Jesus who was raised for us. And would you give us peace in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to first look at how to get peace, how to keep peace, and then what is a perfect peace. Okay? How do we get peace? How do we keep peace? And what is the perfect peace? That's our outline for today. So first, how do we get peace? Now, at one level, as you'll see, our text is actually not about peace. It's about humility. Um, but there's a connection, I think, a, a powerful connection that I want to argue today. Um, because by verse 7, by verse 7, we're casting away anxieties. Isn't that irresponsible? To cast it anxiety. And that's like some sort of 90s era Jim Carrey movie plot premise, right? I'm just going to cast all my anxieties away. Um, Eugene Peterson has a great paraphrase of this verse. He says, live carefree before God. Now that sounds like peace, doesn't it? How do we get to a place of living carefree? Casting our anxieties. Well, the path we're going to see is through humility. So let's walk with Peter from humility to casting our anxieties away. So if you look at in verse 5, Peter quotes a proverb there. Actually, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now this is one of the spiritual laws of the universe. It's the story in the Bible. Take the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are led by a serpent to attain to divinity. The snake says, hey, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be, there's a pride. Don't listen to God. Listen to yourself. And what happens? They disobey, and God opposes them because they're proud. They humble themselves, and God has grace on them. He preserves their lives. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, we don't really think of pride as all that bad, but the book of Proverbs is all about the deadly foolishness of pride. Pride kills. Actually, for Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, pride is the chief and primary sin. It's the sin of sins. 
the sin in the back of every sin. And it was pride that caused humanity's fall. The devil is mentioned in our, in our passage in verse 8. Pride is the devil's signature sin. Which Peter mentions pride and then he mentions the devil. And the Apostle James actually writes a, a very similar section. In James chapter 4, verse 7, he says almost the same thing here as Peter. He says, submit yourself. He, says, he first quotes Proverbs 3, 34, 2. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's something about pride that is devilish, that's demonic, that's we're not to trifle with. We're dealing with something Scary, threatening, dangerous, pride. The 19th century South African pastor Andrew Murray, he listen to this quote, how he explains pride. He says, quote, Pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. When the serpent breathed the poison of his pride, the desire to be as God into the hearts of our first parents, they they then fell from their high estate into all the wretchedness in which man is now sunk. In heaven and earth, pride, that is self-exaltation, is the gate and the birth and the curse of hell. So the natural state of humanity is pride. We exalt ourselves. A great way to... You may, you may not think of yourself as a proud person, but a great way to define pride is my kingdom come and my will be done. Right? We all struggle with times when we really want what we want. That's when conflict happens in our households, in our friends, in our workplace. But related to God, pride believes that we know better than God, that we could or even should be God. In a way, pride kills God in our own heart that we might be God instead of Him. And, and by the way, religious people are some of the most proud. There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 18. He's, uh, it says he's speaking to self-righteous religious types. And he tells them the story. He says, two men went to pray at the, the temple. A Pharisee, who's the consummate good religious teacher. And the tax collector, the consummate sinner, who was a cheat, liar, and thief. Now, in the, the Pharisee's prayer, he piously thanks God for making him a better man than so many others. He recites his religious works, fasting. It's impressive. He really has done good things. And meanwhile, contrast the Pharisee with this prayer of this task collector who's beating his chest, standing far off, and all he can bear to say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know which of these two gets grace? The one who is humble. The one who is desperate. This Pharisee is full of religious pride, full of what he has done for God. He is full of what he has done for God. Whereas this man, this task letter, knows that he's desperate, knows that, he's, knows that he has nothing except God. And then Luke says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Hear that principle. There's Proverbs 3.34 again. God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. When you think about Proverbs 3.34, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, that's actually the gospel of grace fulfilled perfectly, right? What is the gospel of grace? 
that the cross of Jesus is the ultimate expression of humility. You see, it was my sins, my utter mess, my rebellion that required the cross. I could do nothing to save myself. That's actually the pride of religion. Religion thinks that if we can be good enough, faithful enough, then maybe I can atone for the bad that I've done. We end up, but, but the cross says no. That there is nothing that you can do. All you can do is accept the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. We are not saved when we want to, when we clean our lives up. That's pride. And if you come to God in pride, you will ultimately be rejected. But if you come to God in the desperation of a sinner, God gives grace. I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing. That is the opposite of pride. That's why we believe that we're saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. Such a salvation perfectly honors Proverbs 3.34. If we were saved by any work of ours, we would take it as a point of pride. But we bring nothing to our salvation. And so we have no ground to boast, save in Christ and His grace. Now maybe that sounds a little bit old hat to you. You know, kind of like resurgent, you know, the Gospel Coalition. Sounds very 2008, right? 2008. Maybe, maybe we say like, I've grown in sanctification. I've done good. Right? There is some good in me. But here's the truth. All real sanctification is growth in humility. You don't become less humble because you become more good in sanctification. Sanctification is about you becoming more good, but only by realizing how bad you truly are. It is humility. We grow in humility. Why? Because that's who Jesus was. The most humble. Growth in grace is becoming less and less sure of yourself. Less and less sure of yourself. Now, I have more bad news before the good news. You can't pretend to be humble. You can't. Humility is not like a change of clothes that you just put on and then I can take off. You know, there are certain social social circumstances where I think, hmm, I should really be humble right now. And in the very sense, when I'm thinking that, that's ironically the very point when I'm not being humble. Right? Because the humble can't help it. They don't, they have no pretense. The reformer John Calvin, he explained, he says, quote, humility when a man, aware that he has some virtues, abstains from pride and arrogance, is not really humility. <laughs> Humility is when a man truly feels he has no refuge except in humility. The only refuge he has is humility. Humility is knowing and confessing that you are nothing, and you cannot pretend that. Let humility be your refuge. Now, what does this have to do with casting all our anxieties on the Lord? Well, God invites the humble to cast their anxieties on him. Look at verse 6 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And then verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God invites us to consider ourselves with humility. And the application point of that is give me all your worry, all your anxiety. You are too small too weak to handle really anything. 
God confirms that. He says, hey, cast it on me. Give it to me. My hand is mighty. I've been reading uh, Winnie the Pooh to my kids, and I'm continually struck by the humility of Piglet. He knows he's a small animal, and he needs help. And so he's constantly crying out. Friends, that is humility. God is calling you to be like Piglet. That's a a tweetable quote right there from your sermon. (laughs) It seems like Peter is saying that anxiety is a fruit of pride, which makes sense. Think about the experience of anxiety. It tends to focus on something that is wrong or could go wrong or maybe won't go, that should go. And, and, and as you worry more and more about it, your vision and your world starts to shrink. It, it, it's ironic because anxiety doesn't reduce fear. It blows it up. It enlarges it. It becomes disproportionate and irrational, detached from reality. And as your mind, as you get on the hamster wheel of anxiety, which you're, go, you're getting nowhere, it's a closed universe. God doesn't enter into that universe. And do you know what's in the center of the hamster wheel? You. You are. You are the one that knows exactly what should or should not happen, and it's your omniscience. It's driving the anxiety. And so casting anxieties away to God is an act of humble surrender. Lord, you take this. I love when Piglet turns to Pooh or Christopher Robin. I can't, I can't handle this. Come help. That's what humility is. Humility is this breath of fresh air. And it looks up and it remembers that there's a God above you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That you are not God. That there's a limit, a dramatic limit to your agency. Humility does not Fight the pull of God's glory. It says, Lord, you are God and I am not. And thank God I'm not. And as God begins to fill in the center of your universe, all of a sudden the gravitational orbits begin to get right. All of a sudden you see perspective that God is in control. This thing that I've blown up out of proportion is not worth it. God is so much bigger. And this thing that I've been worried about. With God above, you can actually begin to live in the peace of a creature who trusts his creator. I don't know if you're anything like me. There are sometimes when I'm fighting anxiety, like I'm just worried about something. I'm just fixating. And I'll even pray very piously about it over and over again. But, but ironically, I'm actually just as much on the hamster wheel. Like, what I need to do instead is to repent. And not just continue to talk to God about this thing I'm anxious about, but just say, Lord, I want things my way. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And when we, when we repent, and we confess to the Lord that we are not God, when we surrender our will to Him, when we place His hand, His mighty hand over us, that's, that's the way out. That's actually how we're meant to live. As children peacefully and carelessly trusting God. Worry is actually above our pay grade. Even if pride is now the default of human programming, it was not the original default. This is what we are meant to be. Humans do not work best on pride. 
humility is most humane. Humans were made humble, and when they do, when they are humble, they thrive and flourish. It's not anxiety which casts them down, but they who cast their anxieties down. So that's how to get peace. If you don't have humility, you will not find peace. Now, what's, how do we keep peace? Now, peace is elusive. Suddenly you get a text or check your email or your Instagram, and a mental tsunami right, sweeps the calm waters of your soul. So how do we keep our peace then? Well, you cannot keep peace until you keep your mind, which is what Peter calls us to in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Sober-minded. This is not the first time that Peter has used this word. He used it back in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, be sober-minded and do not be conformed to your passions. Sober. It's the opposite of a drunk and careless state of mind. To be sober is to be calm and collected. It's not all that different from what I think is peddled as, as mindfulness in our culture. And then he follows up sobriety with watchfulness. Be awake, alert, give strict attention to, are your eyes open? The night before Christ's passion, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he tells them, watch his disciples, watch and pray. That's this word, watch. Be sober-minded and watchful. Paul will use that same combo in 1 Thessalonians. Keep awake and be sober. Um, we, we are in a tradition, we're in the PCA here, which is a Reformed tradition, and we tend to privilege the mind a lot in the PCA tradition. We tend to stress on what to think. Like, what do we think on about sex or about theology? But we don't often think about how we think. We think what to think, but not how to think. And the scriptures are full of mental virtues like this. Be watchful. Have a sober mind. These are mental virtues. These states of mind that God calls us to. Because this is what it is to be, have a regenerate mind. It's to, it's, it's to be serious, to be thoughtful, to be cared, to be peaceful. Actually, the 17th century Puritan John Owen, he, he did this masterfully. Um, he has a book called On Temptation, which is pretty much like 200 pages on Jesus' command to watch and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, like a good Puritan. And it's all about these mental virtues. How do we develop the kind of mental discipline? A lot of Christians are flabby when it comes to their mental discipline. Uh, how might, as we begin to think about our culture, our culture is hungry for some sort of mental discipline. We have something much more beautiful. We have a sobriety and a watchfulness because God is in control. God is in control. So, but one of the reasons we are watchful and sober is because we have an enemy. We have an enemy. If you look at the next part of verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around, seeking, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy, and so therefore it's incumbent on us to be prepared. I've seen, a, I've seen too many uh, movies where um, 19th century Europeans are like vacationing in the African Sahara, right? And all of a sudden, like the lion's going to get them, right? They're like partying, they're having a ball. They're not watchful, they're not ready. 
If you know that you're in danger, you have a sobriety, a readiness, a readiness. Wartime is not the time to let up your guard. Now, how does the devil devour you? Well, anxiety is surely one way. If the devil can heap on anxiety, you're not going to be very, very much used to the Lord. But it's also pride. That was his weak point, and it's your weak point. The devil is constantly looking to get you focused on yourself. Whether it's your ambition, or your self-pity, your sense of injustice, your self-righteousness, your complacency. And so what Peter is saying is be watchful. Be watchful on yourself. Be ready. The devil is constantly trying to get you. The humble, if we're humble, we know that we are weak. And so we constantly put ourselves under the mighty hand of God. If we're going to keep the peace, we need more, though, than Christian mental virtues. Because peace is not only mental, it's not only an inner state, it's also social. And the devil loves to divide and conquer people. That's why Peter begins this passage in verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Clothe here is a special word. It comes from the Greek word for a servant's apron. In Greco-Roman culture, servants wore aprons. And you knew them by your dress. You knew who was free and who was a slave by their uniform. And so what Peter is saying here is, put on the, the apron, the uniform of a servant. That's the dress of humility. And you put it on like your shirt every day and you leave it on all day. So living with humility towards one another is actually guarding the interpersonal peace that we live in. When we treat each other with humility, yeah, we're still going to mess up and hurt each other, but there's a forgiveness and willingness and openness to forgive. So we looked at how to get peace, how to keep peace, but let's look at the perfect peace that awaits those in Christ. So a lot of this that we've been talking about has been about our work, our humbling of ourselves, our sober-mindedness, our watchfulness. But don't miss all that God does for us. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace... The God who gives grace to the humble. He's the God of all grace. And do you see these beautiful, beautiful things that he does for us? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's an extraordinary series of words. They're roughly synonymous, but each one of them gives us a different angle, a different facet of God's grace and glory to us. First, restore means to put all things right. He will put you right. A right mind, a right heart, a right body. All that is not original to who God has made you to be. All the anxiety, all the fear, all the anger, all the envy. And even all the pride will be totally discarded and you will be utterly restored, completed, perfect. That's what God promises Confirmed. He will restore confirmed. He confirms us. Reinforces us. 
you in the essence of who he's made you to be. He confirms, meaning he's ma- he makes certain his love for you, his grace, his peace for you. After, after Peter betrays Jesus, Jesus comes to Peter and reconfirms him. He says, come and follow me, my sheep. And then Peter says, strengthened. All that was weak and deficient in us, all that's malnourished and sick and broken, the Lord will strengthen with his perfect health. Jesus met a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. It was withered, useless, the muscles had died. But Jesus restores and he strengthens it. Becomes healthy. That's what Jesus does for us. And finally, we have this word established. God fastens and secures you to a firm foundation. This is a word that means that you're grounded. You have a foundation like a house. You are safe and secure on the rock of Christ. And if you are all these things, if you're restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established by God, you cannot not have peace. This is what it means to have peace. It's to be restored. It's to be confirmed. To be strengthened and established in the grace of God. There are moments when the, when the Bible is so immodest. It's too good to be true. But God unabashedly wants us to know it's ahead. And yes, suffering is a part of that. But there's so much more. So what God is doing here is saying, look ahead. I am going to care for you in the most intimate and complete ways. You will be restored. He's giving us a vision of what is coming. That we may not be discouraged. We may face the hardship that is today. I've been easing my kids into movies. They're still young. And I have issues with new, with modern movies. Um, because I feel like every other movie has the moral to believe in yourself. Um, and I don't like that. Um, so we've been watching... Uh, these really old Herbie movies, Herbie, like the love bug, the, 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 the living slug bug. And my kids are still ultra sensitive to the, to any plot tension whatsoever. Okay. And I'll watch, I'll watch with them sitting by me and they're getting more and more anxious. Like we're, we're, we're eating our blankets. We're, uh, we're really worried. We start, sometimes they start crying. Like, the bad guys are doing all they can to sabotage Herbie. And they're so worried. They're so anxious. And so I'll pause the movie and I'll say, hey, it's going to be okay. The bad guys seem like they're going to win. But they won't. I promise you. I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. I promise the ending to my kids. And that's what God does with us. See, First Peter right here, he's pausing the movie. He's saying, hey, I know this tension. I know this suffering. Whatever it is, it feels intense. But I know the end. Because I wrote the end. And my son has won. Christ's victory is peace over everything. Look at verse 11 again. Do you see the completeness of it? To him be the dominion forever and ever. It's everything. Everything is under Christ's feet. That's how the movie ends. That's how the movie ends. And I, I love verse 10. After you've suffered a little while. Isn't that presumptuous? Isn't that all presumptuous of God? What if it's not a little while, God? It feels like it's so long. 
Right? And maybe it has been. Maybe it's been years for some of us suffering. What if I've suffered my whole life? We've been talking throughout this sermon about the perspective that's required for peace, the perspective. It's positional, right? It's, it's putting yourself under God. Under God. But it's also temporal. Christ has a forever dominion, it says. Forever and ever. And in light of eternity, whatever the suffering is, even if it's lifelong, it is just a little while in comparison. A multi-year bout with cancer is but a three-minute wait at the doctor's office in in the perspective of eternity. The dominion and restoration that Jesus brings will be forever, and it is universal. At its best, mindfulness is a disciplined mental stoicism. Its hope is not outside of itself. All you can do is change your mental state. It's not going to change the world. But the peace of Christ that the church proclaims each Christmas is nothing less than a cosmic gospel. Yes, it does instruct you to have a sober and watchful mind, but there will be a day when you will not need such watchfulness ever again. You will be magnificently restored and the devil abolished and all will be peace. That's where we're headed. But it's even better than that because that peace has actually broken into our day now. The already not yet of Christ's salvation, it's broken in because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he already has dominion over everything. Because he has conquered sin and death and everything. And what Peter is saying here is that our lives are beginning to look like Christ's life. You can think about Christ's life in two in two segments. The humiliation, his incarnation, the death on the cross, his suffering. But then he begins to be exalted. God resurrects him from the dead. God then gives him life, a ministry. And God then takes him. He ascends to sit on the right hand of God. And what Peter is saying is that our life also follows the same pattern. Humiliation and exaltation. After you have suffered a little while, there is exaltation and glory coming. That's the good news of peace. Friends, every one of us will be humbled someday. And you have a choice. Is it going to be you that humble yourself or God that humbles you? If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. I'm going to end on verse 6 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Friends, we are headed. If you are in Jesus, you are headed for exaltation, a glory and a peace our world could never fathom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your peace. And we pray, O Lord, that you would make us a people humble enough to have peace. We thank you that you are God and that we are not. Father, for those that are maybe have a tight grip on their anxiety, we pray that you would loosen their fingers. Would they be comforted by the fact that you care for them? Lord, we also pray 
for those who are weary and suffering. We pray that this perspective, the fact that our suffering in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's coming is nothing in comparison. Lord, we thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.